Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. discussing here in regards to like you know the rapid changing world and that's basically one of the reasons why i want to have you on there because you've written this amazing book about gen z and um one of the major takeaways that i I took from your book before you go ahead and tell us what the book was about generally was about how each generation are shaped by what happens within like you know their time so what what are the cultural changes what are the worldly changes that are happening and it seems like in even in my time being a millennial this, mm. this generation seems to be going through the most when it when it relations to like you know economical, <laughs> mental, like social, cultural. There seems to be theological so as well. Theological, so much, so much happening. Like what what, what kind of spurred on the book initially? If you want to let the people know about the book, yeah, absolutely. I feel like if I looked at these interviews we've done, I feel like I've been talking about this a lot. I mean. Mm. I'm obviously known as being a teacher and a behavior specialist, but my true passion is, um, I think I've stumbled upon it, is my true passion is looking at the world and looking at how everything is changing and how it pertains to our generation. That's my passion. I love talking about the future. I love talking about um, the changes that are happening. And, you know, again, having these conversations, it came out of frustration, to be honest with you, Francis, man. Because as I said to you, I think I've said this before, but I'll keep on saying it. We are teaching 21st century kids in 18th century classrooms, all right? I've been saying this every interview, I've been saying the same thing. And, and what I've done with the Gen Z book is I've put all my thoughts basically together and it's had a very fantastic uh, re- reception. In fact, I've had, I can't name at the moment, but there's a couple of universities that are saying that, look, we want to get you in to talk about it. Because the, the fact of the matter is, if I kidnapped a person from the 18th century a teacher from the 18th century victorian era london right and i took him in a time machine and said you're going to come to a classroom in the 21st century 2021 london or wherever it doesn't have to be london but i took a teacher trained teacher apart if i took the electronics away if i took away the whiteboard if i took away the speaker system he would know what this is he would know that wow this is a classroom in fact if i gave him the materials he probably could teach it as well yeah, if I gave him the mathematics materials or the English materials, you'd be like, Rob, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, what's his name, Charles Dickens. Oh, yeah, we're, we're doing that at the moment. You know yeah. what I mean? We'll be teaching, we still teach that stuff. But what we don't realize is that every we're in a time of a hum, massive, massive disruption. I want everybody who can hear what us talking to understand that we are in a pivotal time in human history. The same way that we studied 1935, the same way we studied 1939, 1942, 1945, the same way that we have historians looking at those periods as turning points in history, 1963, 
All right, you can go and look up what happened in those years because of time, all right? The same way that our historians study that and we teach that is the same way that in 100 years from now, hopefully, historians will be looking at what happened in 2019, what happened in 2020, what happened in 2021, all right? We, and I think I said this before, but I'll say it again, we are literally looking at the birth of the information age. I would say that the people say the industrial age, when did it die? But my belief is the industrial age died last year. The industrial... Now, again, I talk about this in my book. Human civilization has gone through a number of ages. So, you know, you had the hunter-gatherer age, then we moved into the agricultural age. And again, William um, Van Hoppen spoke about this, and it's in his book as well. So humans have gone through um, different ages and the way that we function as a culture and as a society. All right. So you had the hunter-gatherer age, you had the agriculture. So the hunter-gatherer age was we went out, we hunted buffalo or deer or whatnot, we ate it and that was it. The agricultural age changed us um, in terms of our evolution because in the hunter-gatherer age, it was about now. I go and kill a deer now, maybe that will last me two or three days and I'm done. Then we went into the agricultural age and the agricultural age was where we started farming. All right. And now farming changed the game for human beings because now we have to think about the future. If I planted a seed today, it's not going to grow. It might not even grow for months. It might. In fact, if you think about it, I plant it in spring to say I plant it in February and then I only reap it in September or you know August, September. That was huge for us because that meant we had to start planning for the future. OK, then we moved into the industrial age and that's when we really took domain of this planet in terms of um the way that we use technology all right so whereas before you have one farmer with uh, one farm and he could probably sustain him and himself all right then you had the industrial age which was the birth of capitalism where instead of having one farmer working on one farm you can now have a landowner that owns so one farmer having one acre of land you have one person owning a hundred acres of land all right. And that's where we saw the birth of factories and the industrialization of farming. And then obviously that's the birth of where we saw uh, capitalism really start to take off. All right. So we're looking at 18th, 19th, 20th century. Now we are moved into a completely new age and which is the information age. I say this to my kids all the time. When me and you were growing up, we mentioned that we're millennials. We were told that we're competing with, you know, when we were getting our grades, we're competing with John who lives in the next town, or maybe that guy that's sitting next to you. Then as we started to go forward because of the internet, and I'll talk a bit about that internet 2.0, we were told that we're competing with somebody from China or somebody from India or somebody from Africa or somebody from Spain. Now we're going on next levels because now we're not competing with humans, we're competing with machines, all right? We're not competing with humans anymore. People talk about artificial intelligence, like artificial intelligence is in a sci-fi in a sci-fi movie. No, artificial intelligence is here. Even today, at this time of recording, I was listening to LBC and they were talking about smart motorways. And smart motorways is way uh, they were talking about um, having self-driving cars on these smart motorways. Yeah. So they'll drive themselves and they'll adjust the speed limit. Now in America, they've already got this. Okay, self-driving cars. Yeah. So self-driving cars, because of the way the way America, in terms of the way they plan cities, is different. So obviously, if you go to a place like New York, they'll go, go to Fifth Street or Tenth Street because it's a grid, isn't it? So that's how you figure out where you are. Whereas London, obviously, is an older city. It's not quite there in terms of the planning, but it will come. It will come. OK, so we're talking about um, self-driving cars. We're talking about all these things. Mark Carney, who was the former governor of England um, about 
six years ago, released a report. And in fact, he's wrote a new book on this actual subject where he obviously as the Bank of England, uh, the, the, uh, the, what's the, what was his title as the Bank of England? Is it the chairman? I've forgotten the title, but he was, in, in, he was the leader of the Bank of England, had to analyze and look at the future trends. Okay. Um, and you know what's going to annoy me? I'm going to, when I come off this interview, I'll know exactly what it is. What is and then, now people are going to be like, he doesn't even know who they... Yeah, you know what I mean? So the Bank of England. So he led the Bank of England. And again, because he, um, because obviously they, of what's going on in the world, he had to um, do reports looking at what's Britain going to look like in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Okay. And one of the things that he found one of the things that he said, which at the time was reported as scaremongering, was he saying by 2030, 50% of the jobs that people are doing now, 50% will cease to exist. And we're not talking about manual jobs. We're not just talking about things like working in a warehouse. As we know, or you may not know, Amazon, I think, is 40% automated now, 40 to 50% automated. So when we press buy on Amazon, there's a machine that picks your things and puts it there, and then obviously the humans deliver it, right? We're talking about things like being an uh, accounting and finance. As you know, uh, the stock exchange now is automated. You know, like in the old films, you say, buy, sell, buy, sell. Yeah, put it down the hole and then people are writing like trading places. That doesn't happen anymore. The it's called, I think it's called the bullpens. They're quiet now because, again, all these transactions are automated. Things like law, where you think, oh, my gosh, you know, um, you know, you need lawyers and whatnot. Yes, you do in terms of to argue cases, but in terms of research, they've already got AI to kind of do things like that. So they, he was talking about um, putting in universal income because he was saying that basically there will not be enough jobs to sustain all the humans. So imagine a, a, a world where 50% of humans do not have jobs. What are we going to do? So he talked about universal income. So they're basically like a benefit system because it, because of the way that the world is going. All right. So these are the things. And in fact, sorry, another thing that I, I, I learned, um, I listened to a podcast. Um, there's a guy called Eight Billion Ideas, which is on Twitter. Really good. And he talks about uh, financial education in schools and whatnot. And somebody sent me a podcast where he had the CTO of IBM. And I think so the chief technology officer of IBM, he had the CTO of LinkedIn. And he had Alistair Stewart, who's the newsreader, whose uh, daughter, I believe, is a head teacher. So he had, uh, you know, so they were talking about the future of education. And Alistair Stewart has a great interest, obviously, because his daughter works in education. And to cut a long story short, LinkedIn basically um, run algorithms like most websites do nowadays. So basically, they look at the job listings and they can gather lots and lots of data. And what they found was that 40% of the jobs, so basically, if we look back five to 10 years, 40 to 50% of the jobs didn't exist. Yeah. All right. And he was, and basically I can't remember the guy's name, but he was saying that if you look at companies like Facebook, it's only 15 years, 14, 15 years old. Amazon is 20 years old. Snapchat is about eight years old. When we're looking at things like Zoom, these companies are new. They're new companies, but they're turning the world upside down. Yeah. All right. So the key line he said, which was really a wake up call for me, was we are preparing children to have jobs that don't even exist yet. Mm. How do you prepare children for jobs that don't even exist yet? And the way that we do um, uh, the way that we teach at the moment is not doing the job. It's not doing the job for them. We are relying too much on memorization and uh, memory, basically memory recall. What is the capital of France? Paris. Two plus two equals four. When we need to invest more in critical thinking, problem solving, 
creativity, empathy. These are the things that the machines cannot automate. So that is my passion to talk about these things because I really feel that we are, we're letting our children down if we don't address these things and talk about why education so desperately needs to be reformed. Yeah, most definitely. And when you look at that, it's almost as if we're preparing them for failure. I mean, you were just talking about some, some of the ways that we're teaching right now. I had a conversation with someone recently and um, we were talking about back in the day, growing up when we were younger and stuff. And the conversation about um, remembering phone numbers came up. And I was like, back in the day, I knew everyone's phone number off by heart. Like everyone. I still remember my, my first house phone number, 0282573153. I still remember it till this day. And I used to remember all my boys' numbers, their mom's numbers, all my parents, my aunties. If you ask me what number do I know today, <laughs> more advanced, more, more well-educated. I've read more books than I could possibly, you know, ever count. I only know one number off the top of my head. And that's, mm. my, that's my personal number. You see what I mean? And I, and I think that one of the things that we, we like, the, the conflict I was having internally was that now we have technology. Should, should we accept technology as an extension of who we are? Or should, we, there, should there be some sort of pushback? Because without it, or if it, if it disappears, or if something was to happen, we're completely lost. Because the reason why we didn't we realize why we don't remember any of the phone numbers now is because we don't necessarily have to now because there's an extent there's an extended tool which is mm -hmm. attached to me now, which is my phone, which contains it. So why do I need to stress myself to remember it? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I believe there's a Yeah, everything you're saying is is absolutely right. I think there's a guy and a, a mangle name, so I apologize, guy. Yeah, uh, uh, guys, for mangling his name. I think his name's Ray Kurtzwill. Kurtzil is a German-sounding name. He's a futurist. He's done work for Google. And I think he, again, forgive me, I could be wrong. He, he, a quote was attributed to him where he said that the humans are becoming more like machines and the machines are becoming more human, okay? Everything you've said there, and there's another great documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma that talks about everything that you've that. said. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely pivotal watching. This is all, everything you're talking about are the dilemmas and the symptoms of the information age. We generate, I can't remember, they said that from 2005 onwards, we generate the, 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 the in terms of like, if you look at things like YouTube, um, if you look at things like blogs, we generate the world's, our uh, civilization, if you take it from like, just say the beginning of BCE, common era, from zero BCE all the way to 2005, Every day we generate that amount of human, uh, uh, that amount of knowledge every single day. All right, terabytes and terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of information. We are drowning in information, but thirsty for wisdom. Okay, we. If you want to look, and this is what the, the, even the kids say to me: Why do I need to learn about Henry the Eighth when I can look at it on my phone? All right, these are the things. And it, in fact, when you look at things like Donald Trump and you look at things like Boris Johnson and whatnot, political analysts have done research studies saying that our attention spans, our ability to focus and concentrate on things is, is, is lowering and lowering and lowering. Well, yeah. I mean, the YouTube algorithms will tell you that. I mean, I've, I've spent time. <laughs> They'll tell you that. <laughs> Long form information. So I think, again, because I don't want to mention studies and get them completely wrong, but the gist of it was this. People cannot sit and read and look at something you know, because of because of the phone. It's a weapon of mass distraction, all right? And that's how it was designed. If you watch that documentary, The Social Dilemma, phones have become almost as addictive as some certain Class A drugs, all right? Mm -hmm. So what we now rely on is what we call sound bites, little snippets of in information. Now, I'm going to say something quite controversial because people are like, I don't understand how, like, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson keep on 
you know, getting elected and people still follow them because I think they're fully aware, right? They called um, Donald Trump the first Twitter president. He, he said what he said in 160 characters because people don't want to. Exactly. Because people cannot follow and listen to a long line of, uh, you know, a speech or look at policy. He's going for the jugular. He's going for this, what is catchy and what catches attention on what is controversial. All right. And there's no point when you look at someone like Boris Johnson and people say he repeatedly lies and whatnot, what have you. The reason why he can get away with that is because, again, people just want to hear what is catchy. You know, he'll just say, you know, he, he comes up with all these slogans. And that's, again, marketing, you know. And this is the problem with technology, because now we are. We, we, what is funny, there's a guy called uh, Sir Ken Robinson and he was the late Sir Ken Robinson. He passed away, I think, a year or two ago. And he was talking about the prevalence of ADHD in new media, right? And he was saying that, you know, if you look at the TV channels and everything, we're distracted. And it, and it's, you see an incremental line with things like kids being diagnosed with ADHD. But maybe it's not ADHD, it's just constant distraction. We can't sit still anymore, all right? And these are all the problems of the modern age. So how do we adapt to these changes now when i talk about these changes i'm not saying all these changes are good or bad i'm just saying they are what they are all right but as educators and as parents we need to understand what is going on because if you think i think i said this before the 40 40 plan is dead you think that you can go to university you know work for one company for 40 years for 40 hours a week you retire with a gold chain and you're going to be happy. You know that when you have the party and, and you retire, it's done. Our generation, Francis, we've been told, I don't know if you're aware, the retirement age for our generation, right? So those people who will be in their 30s, 40s, and maybe 50s is 70 years of age, all right? Generation Z, I don't think are ever going to retire. And what they're saying, there was a, a, an article in This Is Money saying that 50% of 50-year-olds, so half of all 50-year-olds, have not saved an adequate amount of money for their pension. So they're going to retire broke. So when you look at people that are working in B&Q, and you're like, wow, you're like 75. Why are you still working? Yeah. They're not doing it for fun yeah. because the pensions are no longer adequate. If you look at um, people's pensions, they've gone down for various reasons we can kind of talk about, but this is the reality of our, our world. And we're teaching from an old map. And that's what scares me, is we're telling kids, you know, you will go to university. In fact, if you look at statistics, we are the most educated, millennials are the most educated human generation ever. Yeah, when it comes you know? to information, definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I was gonna say something with regards to that. Um, so I've been, as I said, I've been looking at the stats. So I look at YouTube stats and then I look at like audio stats in terms of my podcast and other podcasts. So I look at like Spotify, iTunes versus YouTube. And there's, there's something very clear and very, you know, obvious about it, that, that people love information, but it's about how they want to consume the information. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for instance, like when it comes to YouTube, like anything above 12 minutes, it has to be something of extreme importance to that individual. Like, you know, of extreme for them to go beyond that. Even three minutes. Three minutes is where all the action is. 12 minutes is because I know you, I like you, I like the person you've got on. After 12 minutes, it's like, yo, you know, this we're going too far there, bro. And that's visuals. That's when it comes to visual education. But when it comes to informative, like, podcasts and iTunes and Spotify, the listen, the listen times are very high. The percentages are very high. Because I think it maybe gives people leeway to do other stuff as they're listening. They might be in the gym. They might be in their car playing, like, you know, your podcast or whatever. 
So mm. I, I was trying to figure out what that is that, you know, it, it seems like we like information because informative podcasts are blowing mm. in the audio world, but then it's mm. about how we consume that information because we don't have time for it to... Because I think one of the things that YouTube hasn't really clocked onto mm. is that when people are watching videos, they want to be able to still operate their phones using other functions. Like, you know, they want to be on WhatsApp. I want to, I want to reply to that message quickly. But now you can't do that on YouTube unless you've got one of their premium accounts, which costs money. Do you see yeah. what I mean? So once you come off that video, it's long to come back because now you're caught up in a WhatsApp group chat. <laughs> so whilst the audio stuff, Spotify and iTunes enables you to do it. So I wanted to know your opinion about it because it seems that people love information because my Spotify and iTunes numbers are crazy in comparisons to like my YouTube numbers. And it, you know, it's, it's like people want the information, but it's how they consume it is very different. So it's it's true. I mean, my concern with the times that we're living in is that we have got the width of the information, but we haven't got the depth of the information. So things like mastery, um, we live in a society now where everybody believes in instant gratification. That's why I said at the top of the video, um, you know, the fact that you've made seventy videos, you should congratulate yourself because people don't have patience for those things anymore the problem with what we have we've come to as a society is because if you think about it even myself we, we haven't got patience yeah. with amazon i think amazon prime has ruined a lot of people back in the day you know you had to wait for things time. Uh, for time if you want something from america you're, you're waiting like uh, six months bro you even forget your boy it's like what's this you know what i mean oh that's the trainers i want yeah. but, you know, but now because we can get things almost, you know, it's amazing. I think, you, okay, whether you like Jeff Bezos or, or, or not, or Amazon, I'm not agreeing with their, all their practices, but it's impossible to beat. You know, there's times I can wake up early in the morning and order something at, by 10 o'clock, it's in my house. You know what I'm saying? You can't beat that. But the problem with that, that expediency is that people haven't got any patience. People want everything instantly. And my concern is we really need people who can master certain areas. The problem with the YouTubes and the Spotify's and coming to talking about consuming information, we feel like we're instant experts when we're not. And what that gives rise to, I think, is if you look at like the the whole conspiracy thing and you know all these this misinformation, is that people no longer have the ability to have critical thinking. They'll listen to somebody on on I remember talking to somebody about you know, the Illuminati. And I talked to my kids about it. Said, yeah, so do you believe in the Illuminati? The Illuminati, the Eye of Horus. And I said, where do you get this information from? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jay-Z shook this man's hand like that. I said, they've caught a still picture. You know what I mean? They literally, if I shook your hand and you catch me at the right time, yeah. I was saying, but where are you getting your information from? Yeah. The ability to critically think, to analyze, to compare. And that is why we are having such polarization, you know? It, 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 our media has become more polarised, polarised and more controversial. It's like people can no longer be in the middle or people can no longer see both sides of uh, points of view because another thing what these algorithms has done as well is going on a slight tangent is because an algorithm will look at what you like. So if I go on YouTube and I'm looking at Arsenal mm. and I watch two or three videos, the algorithm goes, ah, oh, Carl likes Arsenal. Yep. And he'll show me more and more Arsenal, right? What if somebody, so I might be thinking I know everything about Arsenal, but then somebody comes to me and talks about Chelsea and I'm like, what are you talking about? That's rubbish because Arsenal are the best. Because we're being, our um, information's being tailored. So we're, we're becoming more siloed. Yeah. We're becoming less patient. We're becoming less, we haven't got the ability to look deep into a subject. We get bored quickly. And I think this this is really bad. As, as a society, <clears throat> absolutely awful. And I, I, 
again, I'm not a political scientist, but I think the things that we've been seeing been seeing politically is a reflection of what has been happening. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I always use my, my, my lad's WhatsApp group to like do little case studies on this because I, I know various factions of my friends, the type of stuff they, they consume. And I know the other side, what type of stuff they consume. So I can just throw a little bone in there and I know what angle everyone's going to come from. Do you see what I mean? It's like automatically, yeah, yeah. you know where the, the anti-vaxxers are going to come from. You know where the, you know, the pro-vaxxers. And it's like, it's, it's so easy to figure out where people stand politically based on just one view. They can give you one viewpoint of how they think about something and you can mm. almost predict how they think about everything else because yeah. the algorithm will bring that to them. Do you see what I mean? So you see, all your mandem are going to look at you differently now. It's like, right, you've exposed the game. Like, you pissed on me for it. They know how I am because I like throwing that questions. Because uh, I recently, um, I read a study which is mm. relations to what you're talking about, the algorithm, and mm. it was making a link between um, at-home single mothers and anti-vaxxers. So mm. when it was talking about Facebook, how Facebook played a major part in this because mm. they found that women that were at home, they were spending their time on Facebook because they were part of Facebook groups, whatever, because they were concerned for their children, they would just go and search out of, out of pure innocence and concern. They'll go on Facebook and be like, oh, I want to join a group regarding this vaccine, which I just took for my child. This has nothing to do with COVID, like just normal vaccines. And as you know how Facebook works, it'll take you to what's most popular in terms of like what's doing numbers. It's, if you type in vaccines for your children, just out of pure innocence and concern, it's not going to bring you necessarily that information. It's going to be mm. to groups where people are talking about all sorts of weird and wacky stuff and and conspiracy mm -hmm. so these individuals ended up being drawn into these various groups and what it does is it then shapes your mindset because the algorithm is pumping you full of this information whether right or wrong and then you become attached to that then you become associated you become emotionally drawn to it then now all of a sudden you find yourself being the leader of the this particular anti-vaxxer group <laughs> because of who you are and how your day-to-day -day is structured and what you were searching for on facebook Absolutely. I mean, in relation to that, I mean, one of the greatest books I've ever read, um, I'm fascinated with psychology. Mm. And one of the greatest books, honestly, like, if you said to me, Carl, I'm going to put you on Mars, and you can only take five books with you. Three of those books will come from Robert Greene. And I'd say everybody, so the, the author of the 48 Laws of Power. Oh, yeah. All right. I know that's a controversial book. But what I think his greatest book that he's ever uh, written is called the laws of human nature and you know honestly the laws of human nature you've you've it's a it's a brilliant book um it's such a treatise it's, it's magnum opus and one of the biggest things that robert green talks about is he says that human beings believe that they are rational all right so you say you know i'm a normal person i can i can make good decisions but what he says is that we are not rational if you look at the way that we deal if everything in our life, right, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the way that we handle conflict, we are very, very irrational creatures. And one of the things that all human beings must do is to learn to see their own irrationalities. Because what we don't realize is looking at several studies and he points to several studies, he looks at people like Carl Jung, he looks at people like um, Sigmund Freud, um, he looks at a, a gentleman called Daniel Coleman, who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he's an economist. He says that, you know, many, most, uh, I can't remember the exact statistic, but we think that, wow, I'm making a conscious decision. But most of those decisions come from our subconscious biases, all right? And why this relates, if we look at, especially if we, we can look at the lens of Black Lives Matter, 
all right, for example. And when I speak to other black people, a lot of other black people are like, oh my gosh, what can they not get about this? Even myself sometimes when I say black lives matter, all lives matter. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> black lives matter as a group. I said, forget the, forget the group. Let's just look at the words, black lives matter, all lives matter. That's racist. I'm like, oh my gosh. But what we've got to understand, and again, in your interview, you spoke about this with um, William Van Hoppel, mm -hmm. is that we have all got subconscious biases towards certain things, yeah. which have been built up over years. And in fact, what's become so insidious is we don't even realize that they are there. Yeah. It's a way that we see the world. There was a famous Guardian advert, which I always loved, where it's an old one, but it's brilliant, where you see um, a guy, there's an old man, and there's a guy, like a, he looks like a punk rocker. It's an old advert and he's running towards the old man and he grabs the old man, right? And the guardian says, oh, what, what do you think? But then what they show is they show it from another angle where you've got like, I don't know, it's like a building works and there's like this um, pipes and they're falling down. And the guy that's running, he's trying to save the old man and he pulls him out of the way. And then the guardian, the strap line was, see the full story. I love that because it always stands in my mind. And that's what's happened now. We're not seeing the full story. They, it was said of Socrates. They say Socrates is one of the, the wisest human beings I've ever lived or the smartest human beings. That's where we get Socratic questioning and so forth. But what Socrates went and did, what made him so smart was that in himself, he says, I knew nothing. There's a famous phrase where he says, I know nothing. So what he did was, and that's where he got Socratic questions from. He went, he would have a viewpoint on something and he would try and find the smartest people and he would argue against his own viewpoint. So he would almost play devil's advocate with himself. And that was the way that he built knowledge because he was saying that, look, I've got a view, but I know I'm blind. Let me go and get other people to argue against me. And if they're, what they're saying is true and it stands up to truth, then it's true because we can blind ourselves to certain things if I'm making sense. Yeah. And that's what's happened. And that's my, my, my biggest concern with the thing, like what we're discussing about social media and algorithms, because it's making us more and more siloed. And what you were saying about the stay at home moms. And the concern is, if we look at, people talk about, you know, nuclear war, and, you know, war, you know, tr traditional war of soldiers. I don't know if you've been following about Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, because there was a meeting between them the other day. And Joe Biden wanted to confront Vladimir Putin looking at, you know, the whole election thing, rigging the election and all this um, misinformation. And what was interesting, they were saying that, you know, what if, um, you know, Vladimir, that Joe Biden gave a press conference and he said, what if Vladimir Putin does A, B and C? And he goes, we've got significant cyber, um, what did he say, cyber capabilities. He goes, I'm not going to tell you what they are, but if they try and mess around with us, they're going to understand not to play around. Because I will tell you you're going to know what time it is. And information now has become the new weapon. So if we look at things like Cambridge Analytica and we look at things like Brexit, and again, I'm not coming with the, I'm for Brexit or against Brexit, but I'm looking at the methodology, right? People like David Cameron thought they had it in the bag. But people, um, it was Dominic Cummings, I believe, and they made a film about this that looked at this firm, Cambridge Analytica, and said, we can tailor ads on Facebook to reach certain people, people that are undecided voters. And we know that we can put A, B and C in there to influence them. And that's what kind of, you know, swung the vote for, for good or for bad. So these are the things that I think about. And I think when I talk to my kids and they say, what is the purpose of education? I say, my job as your teacher, any good teacher, whether I'm teaching physics, citizenship, history, English, is to make you a critical thinker. Yeah. Because they say, for example, think, simple things. Like, I got that from Wikipedia, sir. 
Um, Wikipedia, it says A, B, and C. And I go, do you know I can change it? And sometimes I'll try and pull it up on the board and say, you know, if I look him right now, I can say Thierry Henry is an idiot. Quickly, yeah. Thierry Henry. <laughs> so how do you know how do you know it's correct information yeah. you're talking about illuminati where are you getting your sources from and i think that is what we've got to go back to that's the only drawback with because the problem is we watch a youtube video and think we're instant experts it drives me mad with that you know make a million pounds in bit in bitcoin in two days exactly or yeah. you know start a stay-at-home business and you get you know, you know, you're first, yeah. 200 pounds, but it's this size today, one nine, one nine, nine, nine. Today's this one, nine, nine. <laughs> that's the problem. It preys on, 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 on our young people, and that drives yeah. me mad. It's mad. What touching on the polarization that you're talking about, and William, um, so mm. we, we discussed one important topic as well because I, I, I asked him about the polarization part and why what's happening currently in the world, and then um, he brought up the whole thing about in times of war or in times of perceived war we always revert back to protect our own because we think it's time for preservation. And that's one of the issues with the current, like, you know, polarized battles that we're having. And I gave him this scenario about when, when I watch boxing, for instance, or when I watch any martial arts, like if I'm watching boxing and let's say a white fighter is fighting a black fighter and both of them are from like the UK or both English fighters, like naturally I'm always more inclined to support the black fighter. And I told him this, I don't know if you remember from the interview. And I was like, yeah. I, I gave the example of Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury. And I was like, as much as I love Tyson Fury, I love him as a boxer way more than I do Anthony Joshua. But if I see him smacking up Anthony Joshua, I actually feel it within my soul. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the biases. And the thing is we're not honest about them now because they've been tagged with so many other things and we're not critically thinking about it and analyzing why we feel that way. You see what I mean? Because to me, I, when I see him getting battered, I see preservation. I see myself. I see everything. Mm. I see. I see my family, even though he's not my family. Do you see what I mean? And he was like, "That is one of the issues." But it's fine to think like that. But it's about how we react to these type of situations. So, instance, like for nations and for people to get along, we always need to find a common goal. Like you know, for instance, if, if me, you, and a bunch of I don't know, twenty other people, all different races, creeds, genders, whatever, mm -hmm. go to an Arsenal game, and you know, um, like as it scores a banger, we're gonna hug and go mad. Yeah. Like, and I've got a video like that on my Snapchat, which I always refer back to. So where I sit um, at, the Emirates, at the Emirates, I used to have a um, season ticket. So where mm -hmm. I sit, literally, there's like a English, white English dude next to me. There's a Chinese dude right in front of me. He's always hella quiet. And then there's, like, you know, an Asian family, like, right behind. It's proper mixed. And I remember yeah. the game, us playing Chelsea, that time we batted them 3-0. When, um, I forgot who scored, but someone scored. And this was the first time I've even touched the Asian family behind me and the Chinese dude. It was always me and... The guys next to me, we always hugging out, but then we go quiet, like you know, everyone <laughs> like you don't even know each other. <laughs> when you leave, you just <laughs> there's no acknowledgement. And that's how I look at the world. I was like, when you find something common instead of mm. like always focusing on what makes us different, yeah, we have to acknowledge what makes us different because you know everyone loves their heritage and we cherish that. But when we mm. if we're gonna live together in like a unified society, we always gotta find a common. Because the comment to us was Arsenal scoring, me hugging the dude that I, I've never hugged for like God knows how many years I've, or how many months I've been sitting there. And then all of a sudden, we all went absolutely mad. And that's the first and last time we ever hugged, but who the hell? It's not Arsenal win big games. And when we do, everyone loses their mind. So I, I gave him that example and he, he, he kind of explained to me why that happened because we had that mm. commonality. And you know, that's, that's what nations need to work on. Nations that have a commonality always seems to be stronger regardless of the diversity of the nation and you know when you when you're teaching young ones what, what how do you express to them like going forward like for the future in terms of like what to expect and how to 
how for them to like integrate into society as one. Absolutely. That's that we're two, three, four, five, fifty. Mm. No, that's a very, very good question. I mean, that's a tough question to answer because I've got to put two hats on. There's me, Carl, the teacher, Carl, the teacher that is constrained by the teaching standards, which, you know, I have to follow, you know. So there's certain viewpoints that I can't share. You know, there's certain things I can't say. Um, and again, by law. So, for example, um, the government said you can't talk about critical race theory in schools now. Um, that's illegal. And again, this always makes me laugh. How are you going to prove that? So if I said, for example, black people are superior, which I'm not saying I believe, but I'm just saying that A, B and C, I can lose my job. So what that does is obviously in terms of my opinions, I've got to be very careful what I what I say. But then there's me, Carl, the author and me, Carl, the author that has done the research and looked at things. And that's the battle. To be honest with you, it's a battle every day for me, what I can say and what I can't say um within my profession and in a weird way it's kind of like i'm gone even in your books though i just want to clarify that are you, are yeah you... in my book in my books i'm a lot freer i'm oh. a lot freer again obviously i don't say anything controversial in my books but i'm not because my job look at the end of the day the school's paying me to teach citizenship or english or maths it's not paying me to so i've got a curriculum so for those who don't know a curriculum is basically um it's a scheme of study saying okay so if i if i was teaching history the curriculum says they need to learn Henry the Eighth. They need to learn, so the Tudors. Uh, I'm not a history teacher, by the way. The Tudors, uh, World War Two, uh, the Cold War, and Brexit. All right, those are the four things. I've got to make sure that in the term I cover those four topic areas. They can take an exam, and I can get a grade. That's what I'm paid for. Yes, all that other stuff about inspiration and whatnot, what have you, is nice. But that's what I'm paid for, and that's the sad thing about. And I'm I'm saying this. Now putting my author hat on, Carl Action Hero Teacher Carl, because that I believe is the wrong wrong approach. We've we've become as an education system is so data driven. It's almost like the private sector. Your your teachers are targeted on what grades they can get for their kids. And yes, of course, I'm not saying that we should abolish grades and you know get rid of them. But if you look at places in the more um, uh, Scandinavian countries, if you're looking at the Norways, the Denmarks. Uh, the Swedens, they've got a slightly different education system, which is more about educating to the person. And that's where my passion lies. Because at the end of the day, I'm not being funny. This is me, again, putting Carl the author hat on. I can, I learned about Pythagoras and learning out, you know, the angles, how to figure out angles of triangles. And I got a B in GCSE maths. If you ask me right now to solve that, and my, otherwise my family are going to die, I'm going to have to say, baby, I love you. You're going to die. Because I haven't remembered any of that, right? Okay. It's not, I don't remember that. I don't, I don't, because it, 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 I don't care about it, to be fair. Me personally, I'm not saying it's rubbish for any of the maths teachers here. Obviously, if you're in finance, of course, maybe you can work it out. But it didn't pique my interest. But the problem I think that we have got is that we have become so data-driven. We have become so obsessed with marks. We're not looking at the person. And as many, you know, as, as we know throughout life, it's not always the guy that gets the best grades or goes to the best uni that will get the best life opportunities. There's so many other things. Really quickly, um, I'm gonna mention a, a book that really influenced my line of thinking by a guy called Robert Steinberg. And he was a psychologist, I believe, and he, he, he made a book called uh, Successful Intelligence, I believe. And basically what he found in his research study, because he was equally as baffled, he was like, you know, why do we get, we can get people that go Oxford or Harvard in this case, because he's an American, 
And, you know, these guys are the top of their classes, but in terms of, you know, life success, you know, they're guys that didn't go to these unis that are the same level. And yet you've got somebody who's a college dropout, somebody who, you know, didn't do well in, 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 in you know, in terms of academically, but they, 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 they founded this company or they've done these great things. What's going on? What is the trick we're missing? And what he taught in his book was that he found that there's three types of intelligence. And he's saying that he said that you need to have all three in order to be successful in the modern world. So the first type we are very familiar with is academic intelligence, the ability to know facts and to problems, not problem solve, to know facts, um, recall, um, to, uh, to, to attain knowledge. Yeah, we know that pretty well. We test very well for that. Then you've got creative intelligence. Creative intelligence is the ability to come up with new ideas, to innovate, all right? Uh, and again, we associate that with, you know, painting or music or whatnot, whatever you, to take something and create something new. But what people do not talk enough about was the third one, the missing link, which he called practical intelligence. And if my memory serves me right, he defined practical intelligence as the ability to manipulate and to thrive in, uh, thrive in, in an environment, within the constraints of an environment. What does that mean? Somebody who's practical, in, in my head, I call that street smarts. Somebody who's practically intelligent has the ability to be a creative problem solver, there's the ability to read people, has the ability to look at what's going on in a certain situation and be able to take a lead in that situation, right? That is what he's saying that schools don't test for. In fact, we he reckoned that he only tests for one thing, which is academic intelligence. And practical intelligence, as I was saying, was to do with more about relationships, people, circumstances. How do you navigate between, you know, if we look at, you know, I've read a, um, an anecdote about Thomas um, Tatchell, who's, um, who's the, the Chelsea uh, manager. And, you know, what they were saying, the players were saying about him, and I think this applies to Mourinho as well. I know people, his stock has fell, but people are saying with Mourinho, Mourinho always knew the right thing to say at the right time. And he always knew what to do in that particular circumstance circumstance to make something work. You almost had a, a fingertipped feel for that. And my point is, when I'm saying this, when I'm talking to my kids, going back to what you asked me in the beginning, my mind, I'm thinking about how can I make these guys more practically intelligent? How can I make these guys understand the world? Because practical intelligence is the key. It's, I believe is the key. Now, for me, I was lucky. I think I spoke about this in the first interview. I came from East London. And I think those who people who come from deprived environments sometimes or not very good environments, they have to become street smart. They might not have book smarts, but they have to become street smart. If you look at someone like Jay-Z, who, as far as I know, in terms of his practical education, he got the equivalent of GCSEs and he didn't go further, but the guy is a billionaire. Would you say this guy is not intelligent? Clearly, he's got some form of, and again, there's the lyric by Kanye West where, you know, no, not a lyric, but he said Jay-Z, is the only guy, he goes, him and um, Kim Kardashian are the only people that they know that Jay-Z, when he walks in a room, this is what Kanye said, when he walks into a room, Jay-Z will work out every single person. He will know who is the top dog, who is the person that makes the decisions, who's the, the, the person at the lowest end of the ladder, right? And Jay will go in there and he will adapt himself and adapt the circumstances to get what he wants, right? Jay-Z has this almost innate ability to look at situations before they happen. Like, so if you think about power, when I think about somebody who's very practically intelligent, Ghost, James St. Patrick, 
that he almost had like he was almost mind reading people. It was amazing. It's a I love that character. Although it's a fictional character, it was amazing to see how his thought process worked and how he almost moved people and pieces like ch- you know like a like a game of chess. And that is the key here. We are relying on academic intelligence. But that is not a true marker of of, of intelligence. Yeah. In terms of why, like, uh, intelligence is only measured, like, you know, primarily in one one viewpoint. Like, is that mm. issue? Because, as you said, obviously, I, I came up in East London as well, so I understand mm. the concept of like being street smart. You just had to. You see what mm. I mean? The environment, you know, made you adapt to that. So you mm. you're sharp. You know, you know what to look at, when to look out for stuff. Like, you know, you're always wary of your surroundings and like reading people, for instance, and. You you mm. can't always kind of know where you stand at every every standpoint because absolutely wherever you go, there's different levels of hierarchies and you know and mm. I think that when you come from that type of environment, the hierarchies are more like in your face because they're just there. Like everyone's just life and death in some cases. If you get yeah. make a mistake with the wrong person, yeah. you're you're gonna die. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's extreme. So you mm. need to be wary of that. Like I mean, growing up, we used to have a word that we used to use was called or be digital. So it's like yeah. whenever you go somewhere, one of the owners would be like, "Be digital." Like you know, you're a house party. Be digital. You know that means watch mm-hmm. out coming through to this barbecue. And you know that made me always wary. And now, if I go into an office, I'm still digital now, even though it's not. It's not like <laughs> you know, I'm checking for who's watching me. If I might get an opportunity from here or whatnot, do you see what I mean? But it's like yeah. that level of intelligence is almost as if like it's being gatekeeped out of this this fear of like measuring what intelligence is. And that's Absolutely. an issue to me. If that's how it is in academia as well. Yeah, that that's the, the problem is again we've got to look at, you know, we've got to look at what why why do we do things the way that we do things? All right. And again, I think I mentioned this in a previous interview, but for those who haven't heard, people have a very romantic view of education in the sense of, you know, education's there so that my son can be a you know a holistic person or whatever, and he could be a good person. That is not what our modern education was started for. Again, very, very briefly, if you look at our modern education um, system was started to gain workers, all right? That's the bottom line, whether people like it or not. After the Industrial Revolution, what started to happen was that they started to have lots and lots of factories, but they didn't, they could not get the right people to basically run those factories. So there needed to be a way to, a way that we can process people so that we know what their intelligence is that's where we get the a b the grading system from so we teach a child we they take a test we give them a grade and from that grade we can ascertain where they should be so if somebody's an a grade student you say oh we can make perhaps put him in a more technical part of of the factory or if they're a c or d grade student you say oh okay we can put them on the shop floor that's what it was there for all right even if you look at our education system the things like the half terms and the summer term are hangovers from the agricultural system. The reason why we have a half term and a summer term was not because they wanted to give kids six weeks holiday. It was because most of these kids that were getting educated, used to have, their parents used to have farms. So if you look at it in the summer term, they will go back home. After they've, they've done their education, they will go for six weeks and help their parents on the farms. That's why we've got that six week holiday. It's not for kindness. If you look at places like Singapore, if you look at places like I believe Thailand or Taiwan, they only have two weeks in the summer, and then they're back. They're back learning. They don't, and that's why Michael Gove was talking about maybe we should follow that model. But that got shut shut down. People yeah, like teachers. No, I don't want to do that. So, so when we look at our education system, and this is again me putting my 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 author hat on, we are 
the, the bottom line is, yes, of course, it's nice with all the extracurricular stuff. But again, how, how I know what I'm saying is true is if you look at the way that we um, push kids into certain universities. So I'm, you know, obviously my kids, if they're year 12 or year 13, they want to put UCAS applications. So they might ask me, could you write the UCAS application? And it's all these things of, you know, sir, how do I show that I'm keen and eager and whatnot? So it's almost Pokemon, got to catch them all. Oh, well, I was a member of the, the school band and I did this to show leadership and I've got that grade, that grade and that grade. And what does the university do? Are oh, we like you? But if we want to let you in, you need to get a ABB or an A, you know what I mean? You need to get this type of grade. So that is the proof that, you know, they go into, you, you know, you, you, you do your A-levels or GCSEs to go into a certain sixth form, sixth form into a uni. And from that type of uni, you can go and get a top job. That's the facts of life, I'm afraid. And I say this to my kids all the time. You know, unfortunately, I can go and get a first from, I don't even want to name a real university, but University of Carl, which is based in East London or North London. I can get a first from there, but somebody who gets a 2-1 from Oxford and Cambridge is always going to beat me because yeah. that's the name of the game. Yeah. That is the name of the game, it's you know, and that is where we are. But that's what I, again, so that thing of practical intelligence is not, people might think, oh, as long as I get my, my son or my daughter into the right school, that's all that matters. But I feel that what we are creating is certain people are getting left behind. And, and, the, and the, the funny thing is, if you look at people that go to independent schools or private schools, they know everything that what, what, what I'm talking about. They're kids, you know, I remember seeing one boy that came from a private school and he came to my class and he was reading Niccolo Machiavelli, The Prince. And I remember, look, I was startled. Yeah. And I was like, what? So I was, after, after the lesson, I said, you, do you realise what you're reading? You know, Niccolo, you know, Niccolo Machiavelli, that's where we get the term Machiavellian from. And he's talking about how to... to, 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 to to lead and to rule, and sometimes you've got to use underhand things. So I asked this young man, I said, where did you get that from? And he explained he came from private school. And I go, who gave you that book? He goes, my dad. I go, what does your dad do? He goes, my dad runs his own business. Yeah. I said, oh, really? So what did, he, what did he say when he gave it to you? He goes, so this is, he, my, this, this were the words what the kid said. He goes, my dad said, this is going to teach me how, about the real world. Wow. School's not going to teach me about the real world. And I thought, you see the different levels of thinking there. Yeah. So he's already putting it in his son about critical thinking, about these type of things, how to deal with people. So he's, he's helping his son with that practical intelligence. And I thought, wow, this is the guy that's going to be running the office because he knows how to, he's, his dad's already putting in him how to deal with people, whereas everybody's learning about Pythagoras. Do you see the difference there? I still can't remember it saved my life, but that, that's, the thing. <laughs> that's the thing about having parents who, who have the know-how and, and the understanding and engaging. That's what I always tell people. How, well, I, I tell parents, especially when I come across the aunties and uncles and stuff, I tell them about the importance of like following up and really understanding your children. Because some parents don't understand their children. Like, I, I, I doubt my parents knew I was failing in school, but <laughs> you see what I mean? But that, that's, not, that's not on them because... You know, that was a different generation. Their struggle was completely different at that time. Now they're way better off as individuals and, and mm. whatever part of status of society they're in. But it's like, you know, back then, they, it, was the, it was the grime. So the focus wasn't necessarily on, oh, how is your school? Was, is it even a good school? Not knowing mm. that one of the worst schools about, you know what I mean? <laughs> at the time, it's all about engaging as well and truly like getting yourself involved. But what, in your book, you talked about like the various characteristics of each generation. Sure. And, um, what, what are some of the main characteristics that you know is particularly about like Gen Z and how do you think that's going to vote for like the future going ahead? Absolutely. So 
basically in the book again the theory that i used was were was written or were written by william strauss and neil howe and this comes from their books um generations and they talk about turnings and i won't go through every single turnings but what they believed was that human society every 80 to 100 years goes through um drastic changes all right and basically it goes through four distinct turnings um, and what a turning is, is a cycle when a new generation appears. So what you've got very, very briefly is you've got, imagine a, a clock and you've got 12 o'clock. That is the, what they call the high turning. And usually this comes after a great period of crisis. So a high turning, that's when people want to conform. Everybody, um, it, it's less about the ind individualism at that, at that point is almost stamped out. It's more about conforming. It's more about helping society. It's more about coming together. So in our recent history, the first turning was literally after World War II, after the great crisis of the two world wars, the Great Depression. And people, you know, if, if you look at the fashion, everybody dressed the same, acted the same. And, you know, it was a good time, right? Then going through the cycles, you go through the first turning. The second turning is more of a spiritual awakening where individual people are like, no, we can't all be one society. We can't all act the same. Um, this was typified by the 60s. Um, you know, the swinging 60s, typified by like the civil rights movement where um, society, you know, pe people in this, the, that generation believes that society has become very stale, it's become stale. Everybody conforming is not a good thing for us, all right? And they're not about destroying the status quo, but about saying, look, let's add a bit of, a, let's add a feeling into it, emotion into it. Feminism, first wave feminism. Then you've got the third turning, and this is called the unraveling. And basically the questions that were posed in the second turning are not being answered. And what people do is, is people become a lot more cynical. They become more, a lot less uh, uh, unlikely to work together. Um, you start to see um, visions. What you tend to find in this turning is there's visions of a dark future. And it's interesting because th th for, in modern history, we're looking at Gen X. But if you look at the films of that time, whether it's Alien, Robocop, Terminator, it was big, massive corporations which were basically turning humans into slaves in some way or form. People are putting profit over human beings, all right? If you look at um, uh, Wall Street, which typified that generation, greed is good, all right? That was an unraveling turning, and they believe, believe that that's Gen X and older millennials. And, that was, and it got worse after September 11th. And then you've got a crisis turning, right? The crisis turning is when trust in public institutions uh, and politicians and the people that rule us are all-time low. You start to see a lot of civil unrest, a lot of, uh, you know, people stop talking to each other. You see uh, polarised politics. You start to see people going to extremes in terms of their political views. And then what you see is it's usually um, comes on from, from, from a crisis. And then that generation is known as the crisis generation. And what they want to do is pull down the whole status quo. That's when society becomes renewed. And these guys saw these cycles every hundred years, right? Whether it's the American Civil War, all these types of things. And what I believe, and what a lot of commentators believe is that we are in a crisis turning. And how this reflects in our young people is that our young people, because of technology, because of um, the way things are going, they, they're very entrepreneurial. They're very do it yourself. They don't rely on the traditional gatekeepers. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, what's that school? Pimlico School what happened in the Pimlico school and I think that is a poster of a crisis turning a crisis generation because look school protests are nothing new but the fact of the matter is these guys 
managed to get that trending, not only in the UK, but around the world, because the head teacher tried to implement a, a policy which people believe was racist in terms of hairstyles, saying that you can't have hairstyles which basically block other people's views. He was looking at hijabs, he was looking at other things. But what these kids did was actually quite remarkable. They shaped the narrative, right? They didn't have marketing budgets of Coca-Cola or Adidas or whoever, big companies, but they managed to get worldwide attention on their school simply by using the correct hashtags, using the correct tweets, memes, GIFs. And these things, you know, are, in terms of money, they cost almost nothing to do. Anyone can make a GIF. Mm -hmm. And what was amazing about that, as I was watching Good Morning um, Britain, and they were saying that these guys run a campaign that was worthy of a, of a, a blue chip company the way that they did it. And in fact, they were interviewing some of these kids and they were like, the interviewer was saying, you know, where did you get inspiration from? He said, look, we looked at the Black Lives Matter movement, we looked at Extinction Rebellion and we copied their tactics. Our young people are the most powerful young people in human history, the right? The tools, this thing here, well, I don't know if your viewers can see, it's a phone. This thing here, and I put this in my book, has more power than what put man on the moon. Yeah. Right. This is a literal computer. It's not even a phone. It's a literal computer. And from and because of these devices, the blurring between those who rule, who govern and those who are governed, there's virtually no lines. Another small thing I say to people when I train them is that right now, a young person can literally go online, go to Boris Johnson and say, I think your mom's a beep, 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 your phone, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Now, what people don't realize is that in terms of human history, this is something completely new. Mm -hmm. If you even look a hundred years ago and I or somebody else went to Winston Churchill yeah. and said, you're a fool or whatnot, I could get beat, well, a, a minimum I'm getting beaten up, but I could get arrested. Yeah. If you go 300 years ago, you'll get locked in the Tower of London. You are not allowed to say anything. If you look at what happened in, uh, uh, in France, Emmanuel Macron was walking around, he got slapped in the face. A big slap, there was vim in, the slap, the guy got a suspended sentence. But what that is showing you is these are the hallmarks of a crisis generation. Ooh. That the respect for those who are in authority, if you look at the trust levels, I think, and again, I talk about this, the Pew Institute is a research body in America. They've been, they've been around for about 80 years. They've been around for a long time. They've been tracking trust in government institutions. And basically, if you looked at a graph, imagine the graph is the years on the x-axis was the years, as the decades as they've gone on. And on the y-axis was the level of trust. During World War II, when it first started, the trust level in Americans was like, if you, they, they asked a simple question. If the government tells you to do something or give you a piece of information, would you trust it? 80% of Americans said, yes, we trust what the government are saying. So if you looked at this, imagine, okay, this is the bottom here. It went on, went up and down a bit, but after the Watergate scandal, it fell off a cliff. The research shows it literally dropped down to about 40% and it never recovered. Even in Barack Obama's time, it never ever recovered. The trust levels, I think, stand at about, at, under Trump, and again, it's not about Obama or political affiliations, it was only two out of 10 people trusted what the government would tell them. Yeah. Now, the problem, the reason why this is, again, historians will look at this and think, oh my gosh, this is a problem. If you look at what happened in the French Revolution, if you look at what happened in the Russian Revolution, if you look at what happened in Germany under the Weimar government, mm. before Adolf Hitler came, these were the same problems and these are symptoms. And what this could lead to is wide-scale revolution. 
And in a way, when I was looking at what happened with Black Lives Matter, in my head, I was thinking, are we witnessing a revolution? Well, Turned out it wasn't a revolution. I thought it was a trigger at one point. I thought it was going to be the trigger for it, yeah. For a revolution. But I don't think this has gone away. I don't think this has gone away. And when people well, forget... Yeah, I, I really feel, okay, 2020 was the crisis. But again, if you look at the, the, the previous history of the previous crisis generation, remember, they had World War One in w, um, w, 1914 to 1918. You thought, okay, they passed that. They had the Great Depression in 1929, which, you know, was the greatest depression the world's ever seen. And then from that, and uh, uh, and what happened with Germany when they lost World War One, that led on to World War Two, where we literally now have the capability to end the world. So people think, oh, you know, 2020, you know, we're finished with COVID. I think COVID is opened a Pandora's box where we, we will possibly see even worse things start to come. And again, with Brexit, we're still, you know, we're still early doors in terms of Brexit and looking at that. So I think this generation is well aware of it. This generation, going back to your question, is willing to fight back. That's why we're seeing things like Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, who's the, uh, you know, the activist, it's, it's incredible. She's 18 years of age. She's done so much already. When we're looking at Black Lives Matter, when we're looking at people like Malala Yousafzai, side. So the young people have now taken on the baton and saying, you know what, society, if you do not change, we're going to change it for you. We're going to burn this whole ish down to the ground. And as teachers, we've got to understand, because teachers always complain they're going to challenge me. Why do these kids challenge me? Because they've got the capability. If they can tweet Boris Johnson and say, you know, I hate your mum and you, why do you think they've got to respect you? And we've got to change because of that. That's what we're seeing. And again, sorry, one last thing to add on to that. We're not even looking at what's going to happen with artificial intelligence. If you look at Amazon, there's not one human salesperson on there. It's an algorithm. Because what they do when I'm buying my socks, they look, they've got millions, possibly billions of data points saying, oh, somebody bought black socks. They're going to want black shoes. So when I look on Amazon, it says, oh, other people, and it even tells you, obviously, other people that bought your black socks bought this. So what's that going to mean? What's, these are the things that, as a society, we've got to wrestle with. And we're already hurtling down that path. Because when artificial intelligence and things start to kick in, which they already are, and, you know, unemployment, these jobs are not coming back. John Lewis closed, I think, a third of their stores. These jobs are not coming back. They're not going to open more John Lewis stores because Amazon is kicking their butt. And again, it's nothing against John Lewis, but the whole retail sector, re retail sector. What are we going to do when the self-driving cars come? What's going to happen to the black cabs? You know, what are we going to do when we need to get rid of accountants? Because again, we've got software to do all that stuff for us. These are the questions. And this is what we have to prepare young people for. And that's my passion. Yeah, that's amazing. Man. And the thing is, to me, like all of these things that you mentioned are inevitabilities. Like to me, I don't, I, I don't push back against all of it. But, you know, like majority of you just have to accept that is, is the way of the future. Things have always changed throughout history. But the fear that I have, or not fear itself, but the issue that I have is that, you know, particularly people like yourself, you know, you're in a position where you're educating this new generation, you're educating the future. Right. Like, how do you go about, like, engaging and inspiring them and preventing them from getting manipulated? Because also right. having these tools that are so powerful to them, is, it also kind of leaves them, like, vulnerable to manipulation. Because there's so much manipulation out there. And you can see them shifting. Like, you know, when I speak to my younger siblings, like their ideas are con continuously shifting. And I know why they're shifting because they're so stuck into these tools. That's why I don't tweet. Like I'm not on Twitter. I only go on Twitter to look for what's trending 
for my own research purposes. I check what's trending. I, I go into the, if I need to do more Googles about what's trending, that's that. I don't really engage with Twitter because I, I can't have those debates that I want to have on Twitter. Mm. The format is for me in particular. I love the platform, but I just don't think the format is for me as a person. I'm, I'm dyslexic. I can't engage in it. Like, you know, so <laughs> typing in Mandarin and someone else typing in English. So it means like, how do we shape them? Not just necessarily students, but, you know, younger siblings, people that I engage in conversation with. How do I go about like engaging with them and ensuring that they don't get manipulated? Absolutely. That's a great question. A couple of things I would suggest. Um, again, these are, these are old school ways of, of, of looking at things. Mm. So a couple of things. Number one. All right. So number one, to engage. I say this to teachers and I train teachers to do this. I call it bridging. We can no longer come from a didactic, um, do as I say or else way of doing things. That's gone. That was the 80s. That doesn't work anymore. For all the reasons I've just said over this podcast, the, the line between those in power and those who are not in power become blurred and blurred and blurred. Then that's not going to run. This young, this generation, as I said, they're ready to burn things down. They're ready to do what, I, I mean, I was watching Extinction Rebellion and I was like, some of them were like, we're going to do whatever it takes to kind of try and reverse the ecological damage. You know, even like Black Lives Matter, for better or for worse, people are like, no, things need to happen now or else you've got to approach it from a different angle. And when I talk about bridging, when I talk about teaching, but this could be parents, is that you've got to look at their intrinsic motivations and you have got to um, try and match what you want to teach them to what is their intrinsic motivation. So for example, I remember I was covering a, a Spanish lesson. I had a kid in my classroom who, he was a footballer, he's avid on football. His dreams to play for football, uh, play for a football team. So he said, you know what, this is absolute bollocks. I don't want to learn Spanish. It's not going to do anything for me. Now, if I want the old school method, do it or whatnot, it creates resistance, yeah? It creates resistance and he's not going to want to do it. And not, not only am I setting myself up for failure for that lesson, I'm setting myself self, self up for failure for any future lesson. Anytime I'm going to teach, just say I was a Spanish teacher, he's going to bunk, he's going to truant because he's going to think this is dead, this is boring, this is nothing to do with me, Yeah. So what I would do in that position, and I've done this, is bridging. So he said, I love football. I said, oh, who do you like? Oh, you know, I like this. Do you like Messi? He goes, yeah, yeah, I like Messi. Da, 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 da. What's your dream? If I, if I could take you, you know, if I could make, do a magic wand and I can give you all the skills, where would you like to play? I would like to play like for Barcelona, Real Madrid, or Atleti, or Atletico Madrid. What language do they speak? Spanish. <laughs> So imagine you, Diego, do you know Diego Simeone? So I, I would say, that's just what I said, Diego Simeone, you know he doesn't speak English. Do you know that? So when he's giving you instructions on the pitch, uh, exactly, when he's giving you instructions and you're not following what he says, then you're going to get kicked. You're not going to stay in the team very long. In fact, I was, uh, Thomas Partey from Ghana, he was even saying like, he came from Ghana and he had to learn Spanish quick. People didn't have patience. He was saying that, boy, he had to learn Spanish quick. So what I was saying, so, you know, he speaks English, he speaks Spanish, he speaks, I think, Twi, I'm not too sure. But what I was saying, it became a different conversation. Now that child is thinking, okay, I can see where Sir's going with this. Mm. And now he had more, what I did, I didn't force him. I just showed him. And that's what we've got to do with our young people. The, the problem with a lot of adults is we just shut them down. But trying to shut them down is like shaking a bottle of Coca-Cola. Yeah, you think you've got it, but as soon as you release it after you've shaken it, it's going to blow up. And that's what I'm looking at with all these things, right? So that's number one. We've got to um, teach that we've got to bridge. We've got to look at their intrinsic motivations. Number two, 
It's that critical thinking piece. And again, it's ancient. That's where we get Socratic questions from. We have to teach our young people. So I teach citizenship. One of the things I do is I teach them. So for example, if they've got a very strong view on something, so just say, uh, and again, what I say is a hypothetical. I'm not saying I agree with this. So they will say that, you know, women deserve equal pay to men. And I'll say, who believes that women deserve equal pay to men? Usually it's the girls. You know what I'd make them do? I make them argue against it. I'll say, I want you to argue against and say that men deserve higher pay. Although they're horrified, I said, you need to learn how to see from other, somebody else's perspective. So they'll argue fiercely and they'll go backwards and forwards. And what you see, you see the light bulb. So after the discussion, I'm like, how did you find that? Although I didn't agree, sir, I can see some points of view. I can see why they believe A, B and C because it forced me to look at another perspective. And I think that is the, the key. Let's not make, um, a lot of us are slaves to information. Remember, information is a tool. Data is a tool. You research both sides of the argument. It's so simple, but we don't. Because remember, the algorithm is not interested in you becoming educated. It's interesting in, in, in your eyeballs staying on the screen. So it's important, even as you said with Twitter, I look at certain things and I notice that in my trending, it starts to come up more. So Arsenal, I get all the jack of sweets and all that. I know, that <laughs> I know it's trivial, I realise, okay, on that, I don't really care because I'm, I'm only interested in Arsenal. But when I'm looking at things like Black Lives Matter, when I'm looking at things like, you know, Extinction Rebellion, when I'm looking at things like Brexit, you know, I'm, I'm very much against Brexit. But I realised and said, because when I was talking to some of my colleagues, they were like, they're morons. People that vote for Brexit are morons. They're idiots. And I'm like, look at the language. Yeah, You're calling somebody else a moron and an idiot. Why? And again, I did my own research and I can see, I can genuinely see why people would vote for Brexit. Although I'm still against it, I can understand. And that's the key because that is the inflammatory language, especially on Twitter. You know, you say something like, again, I got into, I got so, into so many arguments about Black Lives Matter. I'm like, why are you so angry? because they've got a fixed worldview they haven't looked at this side so it's important to teach your young people and that's part of critical thinking to look at all sides you know legend has it last thing i'll say on this is that i think joe biden does this as well barack obama before he made a policy decision he set up his cabinet where he would get them to argue fiercely his job was basically to see who, which argument was the strongest so somebody will bring his policy advisor will bring him something he would literally, because he's a lawyer, isn't he? He'll cross-examine it and tear it to shreds, right? And he'll be really angry. It's not about winning or losing, but if they were not prepared, he'll get really angry saying, you know, you've got to give me all the points on this now. Are we going to go into Iraq? Give me all the pros and cons. And if they if they come up with, I don't know, he would flip out because he said, you need to know. You need to give me everything so that I can make the best decision. And I think Joe Biden is very much the same. I don't know about Trump or any of the others because they understood you need to be able to see it from all angles or the best, get the most holistic picture possible. And that's what I think with our young people, we've got to do. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Um, <laughs> I think Jordan Peterson said something in relation to like critical thinking, which, which really helped me like about two, three years ago. He's like, whenever you have an idea, like before you make up your mind based on like your biases, because the thing is, if, if anyone throws any idea at you, remember you know, you know the ins and outs of that idea, you're always gonna have an opinion. You're always going to be like, mm, nah, maybe, you know, you're going to feel something towards one side of the argument. But he's like, whenever you have an idea or there's, there's some sort of like, you know, cultural debate going on, you grab that idea, put it up against the wall and shoot every bullet. Every bullet you can possibly, 
and, and you know, you answer back at your own, you know, you try to block your own bullets and see what happens. Because one of them is going to catch you and a couple are going to miss and then you analyze all of it and figure out, you know, which one makes the most sense. You see what I mean? Absolutely. You have an idea and just take it based on like your biases or your 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 perceived knowledge because it doesn't work. So it's a, it's a beautiful way, man. And those points you gave are like, you know, our idea in terms of relatability and, and also like getting people into things by learning how to like, not coerce as such, but like, you know, negotiating, you know, to get the best out of kids, man. It's, it's, it's a, Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, one last thing to add to that. There's just one last thing. I think one thing that we, not only our kids can do, but we can all do is take a step back. Take a step back, breathe. The problem with social media, and again, if you watch The Social Dilemma, they talk about this, is the immediacy. It's the FOMO, it's the fear of missing out. When it trends, that's why trends happen. Because, oh, I want to talk about something. I want to talk about, you know, Love Island or whatnot, whatever you, it, they, they, there's a good positive thing because you feel part of a community. When you're following a hashtag and people are applying to you and you're applying to them, you know, it feels an immediacy. But what we've got to understand in that is that we, as human beings, we've got an individual mind, but then we've got a group mind as well. That's why it's interesting you spoke about Arsenal. Um, because we there's such a, you know, when you go in a crowd, it's like whether you go to a church or whether you go to, I don't know, a concert or a football game, we can get easily stirred up by the event. Do you know, do you know, do you know what I'm saying? So we can, we can start to say things and do things and feel things that we've never felt before because we are in a group and everybody's moving the same way. It becomes harder and harder to go against that. And it's funny with social media because they're talking about trolls. You know, you're anonymous or relatively anonymous. You know, you're going to, you know, say like Rio Ferdinand was talking about it the other day where people, you know, doing monkey chants and whatnot, what have you. And I remember there was a box actually who he, he had a, a um, his daughter had um, special needs and he was getting constantly trolled by this the people always cussing his daughter and he found the guy and he said guys help me find this guy and he went to his house he goes go and say that to my face and he bought him on tv you know fair play fair yeah. play he didn't beat him up yeah. and what was interesting the guy said you know what i thought it was a bit of fun and before i knew it you know people were doing it so i jumped in and i thought i'll do it as well and you know before i lost myself in it mm. and humans don't like exactly people humans don't like admitting that but we can lose ourselves i see that in classrooms you have a, a a boy or girl, they play up in front of their friends, they want to be bad, they talk back. But when all their friends are gone, they're different people. Yeah. Because as human beings, that's how we evolved. The reason why we are like that is because, you know, you haven't got time to analyze. If everybody's scared or fearful, there's a tiger coming, you've got to mobilize quickly. Remember, there wasn't always language. Language is a relatively new invention for human beings. So if I could see you're getting agitated and you're flexing your muscles and you're grabbing a stone, it's like, you know, if you see people running, imagine, you know, you're in the street and you see people running and screaming, you're going to start probably running. <laughs> you're, you're not even thinking, you're, you're, you're asked question, you'll be running, like, why are we running? That's, that's why humans are done. So what we've got to do, especially with social media and things like that, is we've got to all take a step back. When our emotion, especially when it's something really emotionally charged, sometimes just put it down. Don't make a, a decision straight away. Don't read and tweet. That's why it's, it's funny when I look at celebs and stuff and they, you know, one guy tweeted a doctor, he's a TV doctor. He said, oh, this woman clearly looks like she's having an affair. Um, Arlene Foster, I believe. And she took him to court and he has to pay 130,000 pounds. And he said, I can't pay that money. I'm, I'm, I declare bankrupt. And I thought, wow, off a tweet. 
because he got he, maybe he got caught up in the moment. Mm. That's where it becomes dangerous. So we all got to give ourselves. So I take um, three days. I'm on social media four days. Three days I take three days off where I don't look at it at all because it's, you know it's not good and you got to have your own thoughts in your own mind. So that's the last tip I'll give. That's amazing. I, t- I take weeks off. I don't know if you noticed that, but I, I yeah. personally like because the thing is. I know the impact of it, and, and if I enjoy the work I do outside of social media, like I thoroughly enjoy it. Like I'm studying documentary filmmaking and all of that stuff, and I'll be practicing, and I'm out here filming and shooting and editing, and you know I've got my data job as well. So it's like it, it, I enjoy a lot of the stuff I do outside of it. So I, I don't necessarily have to engage with that much, but because I got a podcast, I'm kind of forced to just have all the various platforms. So if you go to my Twitter, for instance, you know the only thing I tweet is oh new episode out. Instagram, same thing, new episode out once in a while, a picture here, something like that. Because it's too much, man. It's too much. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know why, maybe it's just naturally I'm not really like deeply involved in social media mm-hmm. like that. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot to take in, man. And I just feel for the, the, the younger generation because their minds had to deal with this from such a young age. Whilst us, we, had to, we got to enjoy riding our bikes around the roads and, you know, driving <laughs> across the whole borough and doing whatever, wherever we needed to do and playing football here. and you know, chasing girls here and there and from different areas. <laughs> but then they started on this wild race where they were connected with like millions of people. Like I know 17 year olds with like 300,000 followers on Instagram. It's crazy. Like, but, but, like, but what what that, you know, what is scary about what everything that you've said, because the research has started to come in on COVID and they're saying that this is affecting the mental health. Um, I think uh, a lot of mental health where children have had, to, well, children and young people have, I think, uh, been sectioned or got anxiety where somebody's had to come, an outside ex- uh, agency, whether it's the police, whether it's the ambulance have had to intervene, it's gone up by 20%. They're saying that one in three because of COVID, um, because of COVID and lockdowns, just not because of COVID only, but lockdowns, you know, it's caused, I think, one in three young people to have some form of mental health crisis as well as the adults. And what I think about is that as human beings, we are designed to be, you know, in proximity to each other. Now, so for example, me and you, you know, we're talking through a video screen, but we're designed to be in proximity to each other. My biggest fear with all this technology is that we're forgetting what it's like to be human and what human and one of the most startling things i've read a research study in america where they were saying that children so basically what happens is you know you have your child and they stay at home and then they go into daycare and um you know obviously they learn to interact and then obviously they go to preschool and school and so on and so forth that process has been interrupted and one of the um researchers i can't remember where i read it was saying that you know kids are going to miss developmental milestones i'm seeing this in school as is so they're le- they can't interact, they're not maturing, they're not hitting their healthy milestones. We're seeing even, you know, kids as young as three and four showing signs of anxiety and stress because, you know, and again, they're not missing their education. They've got screens, but it's not the same thing. You understand? So even when I'm looking at the year sevens and year eights, and, I, you know, again, because obviously I've been teaching for o- o- over 10 years, I look at them and I think you've not really matured. You're still behaving as if you were in primary school, but then I remind myself and say, Carl, they've, they've missed two years virtually, two academic years. I know it's been 18 months, but remember, it's two academic years. So they've not hit those milestones. And I said even to my colleague just today, when they reach year 11, because we know academically, you know, they, you know, they reckon up to, I think, 20 to 30% of learning is, uh, sorry, the Department of Education reckon, reckons that 20 to 30% of learning has been lost during this pandemic. But I say that, not forget the learning, but that's one side of it. But what about the interaction? 
We're seeing people that are going to university coming home with anxiety and stress and, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, intrusive thoughts because they're not interacting. They're just in their dorm rooms looking at screens. And that's what worries me. How if we're not if, as a, 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 if young people in a whole are not being able to interact in healthy ways, don't, I'm not saying we should, you know, everybody should hug and kiss or whatever. Well, I'm not saying that. But that is what worries me with this generation, with the technology, with the lockdowns, how are they going to learn how to be human? Because people are even saying, I've read somewhere, which is a bit funny, they're talking about dating and people are saying we, they, they forgot how to date because, they, you know, people can't interact, you know, Tinder. So when you're meeting in real life, people in real life, you're almost scared. You're looking at them in a, a weird way. You know what I mean? These are the things that I think as a society, we've got to reckon with and we've got to look at. And that's the challenge, I think, for them. Yeah, that's the challenge that we were fighting for you, man. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure again, man. Thank you, brother. Trilogy. Ooh, man, I appreciate that. There's going to be many more, man. Like, I'm... <laughs> franchise, yeah? Yeah, man, it's a franchise. I always say this, but to me, this is like early days for me in podcasting, even though I've done so many episodes. Like, it's, there's so much more to do. And, you know, I've got a lot to come. And obviously, like, all the, all the people that I truly respect, like yourself, I'm, I'm bringing you guys along with the journey. That's, that's Thank what, you, bro. That's what it's all about. I mean, I really appreciate it. And, and the book is amazing. I mean, I've read, I've read like about a quarter of it so far. Um, it's going to probably figure out from some of the questions I asked. But, I yeah. read it, but it's amazing. And it's, it's a read I definitely recommend. I'm going to put the link to the read um, in the descriptions and push that out as well. I've, I've downloaded that for the time. So. Thank, thank you, brother. Can I do a quick plug? Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. Yeah, so yes, all the people, if you like what we're saying, thank you to Brother Francis. Head over to www.actionheroteacher.com, all spelled correctly. I am Carl C. Poupe. I don't know if I introduced myself, but yeah, if you like what you're hearing, I've got a free ebook called Teaching Generation Z. It's not just for, for teachers, it's for parents. Anybody that's got any interest in young people, please read it. It's not some dry, boring tome. I've tried not to make it that way, but I've tried to use sociology, psychology, all the ologies to give you something that, that give you a picture of what's going on with our young people today. So head over, grab yourself a free book. Yeah, sick part, man. Definitely, I'm going to push that, man. Appreciate it,